that's the sort of million pound question <laughs> is Literally. what what the hell the UK wants. I think what was become very clear in this, right, is that the UK wants things that are incompatible, right? So the UK wants to have its cake and eat it too. And then smush that cake in the use face. <laughs> yeah. Like it wants those three things. And I'm like, those you, you can't even have two of those things. Yeah, you can have yeah, one of those yeah. things. Right. Hello everybody, you're listening to the Slavic Connection. Today I was joined by Lawrence Rede. Lawrence Rede is a professor at the LBJ School of Policy. And a little background on Dr. Rede. He was born in Hungary and has lived all over Europe. Got his undergrad from Middlebury College in the lovely Middlebury, Vermont. Got degrees from Georgetown and the Central European University. Has published a number of papers on EU um, and a great deal actually on the coherence of the EU in general and what kind of metrics we can use um, to address that in the future. And he's also a very underrated basketball player. I play with him occasionally. He's kind of a stretch for a very useful player. So hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. We have a special episode today, a three-headed hydra of increasing ferocity. I'm your host, Tom Rehnquist, joined today with co-host Matt Orr and a special guest today, Professor Lawrence Rade. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so uh, today I'm sure we'll be covering a lot of topics, uh, focusing, of course, on the European Union at large. Um, As an expert, I was hoping you could talk about sort of what you call yourself in terms of the larger scholarship around the union and um, how did you come to that as a focus? Yeah, so I think the first way I came to this is through sort of my own self-identification as a European. I, uh, I'm originally from Hungary, that's where I was born, but I moved around a lot when I was a kid. So I lived in Germany, I lived in um, the Netherlands I lived for a couple of years in the US. And so I never had this strong feeling of nationalism and in fact I started to get really allergic to that kind of nationalism and when I when I discovered the the European Union when I was a sophomore in undergrad I took a class on it called the European Union Mm -hmm. and I hadn't really heard much about it before and it just struck me as this amazing project where I was like oh you can actually do politics (laughs) without having to you know, really bandy around this sort of nationalist, patriotic, um, exclusionary rhetoric. And so I just, I actually, you know, fell in love with the project as a whole, as a, as a, as a political project. Um, so I started studying it. And uh, what I realized relatively early is that what I was really interested in is the European Union's foreign policy. So what I mostly do research on is the European Union's behavior as an actor in international relations rather than its, than its internal politics. And so, so my field is in international relations, so I kind of uh, come at it from that, from that respect. And then because I worked for the European Parliament for a number of years, it just lent itself uh, very easily to me looking at the role of the European Parliament in the EU's foreign policy. That, so that's kind of my, my niche within that. Yeah, I mean, kind of going off of that, you know, there's a lot of people are talking a lot today about is, is the EU on the rise or is the EU in the decline? And we, you know, one of our colleagues, Lauren Nyquist, actually um, interviewed Dr. Mosser Mm -hmm. for our program not long ago. And he said um, something to the effect of that if you kind of forced him 
to take a, you know take the side of a bet that um, he thinks that EU competency in most areas has really kind of reached its high water mark, and that he would expect you know in the coming years for it to kind of some to you know to decline a little bit. So I was just curious about where you come down on that, and what what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of half agree with with Mike on that. I think. It's true that if we think of European integration as this massive project to bring the entire continent together uh, and to put more and more political decisions on the level of the EU rather than on the level of, of member states, we've probably reached a relative high mark for that. I am not, a, <clears throat> excuse me, not of the opinion that it would be easy to reverse that trend. And what I mean by that is I find it hard to imagine how you would kind of repatriate policies to the to the national level. And the reason I'm saying that is because the entire way that the EU is set up to function is you have, you know, the EU is based on law. It's, it's all based on legislation. You pass regulations and directives, and um, and those are then then binding on the entire continent, or, or at least on the member states. And the way that that works is you have you know, the European Commission propose legislation and the European Parliament and the Council accept it, right? And I have a hard time imagining the European Commission kind of getting behind this project of undermining its own authority. I just don't see how that would happen. What I can see happening is a stagnation where you don't have... You, you basically stall in this process of European integration, mm -hmm. meaning you stop putting more and more policy areas on the European level, and it just kind of fizzles. The problem with that, and I think this is, this is what's going to be the real challenge for the European Union in the future, is that uh, one of the standard metaphors for the European Union in the literature is that it's like a bicycle. Um, if you keep going, meaning if you keep integrating, it just holds itself upright. But if you stop on a bike, you just keel over, right? And so the idea of, okay, it's going to stagnate, it can't just stagnate and stay still. Right. Like the entire machinery of the European Union is set up to create more and more legislation. So unlike a, a, a national you know, government, you know, the commission has very few responsibilities in terms of like enforcement or just maintaining laws. Like a lot of that is actually done by the, the, by the member mm -hmm. states. The European Parliament has no reason to exist if it's not passing more legislation. It would just be sitting on its hands. So I don't think that's sustainable in the long run. You can't have for 10 years an entire machinery of the European Union set up to just sit on its hands. So I think that that's, that's tricky. So my bet is actually is not that you're going to have a repatriation of policies to, uh, to the national governments, nor that you have a complete standstill. I think what's much more likely is that you will have basically this two-speed Europe emerging. Right. Right? And so you're in some, among some member states, there's going to be a political decision made to go forward with European integration. You're going to have you know, um, attempts to make a common Eurozone budget, or at least common Eurozone budget rules, um, some sort of harmonized unemployment benefit scheme, at least within the Eurozone, some sort of um, maybe collectivized uh, debt um, in terms of you know, at least um, so building upon what happened after the, the Greek financial crisis. Um, to, to, to have the European Central Bank be a lender of uh, last resort, um, you know, maybe even something like a common European border guard, like these kinds mm -hmm. of things. Right. Um, but I don't think all of the member states are going to be 
um, be interested in doing that. So you'll you'll probably have more of a patchwork of sort of concentric rings of uh, of cooperation. And the, the middle of this ring is is going to be France, Germany, and the Benelux states. And then you'll have different, you know, for different policies, you might have kind of somewhat different, you know, groups of member states participating. So you'll have this incredibly messy Venn diagram, right, of like 17, 18 layers. Like these are the ones that are in the, which already exists, right? So if you look at a, a you know, a, an EU textbook, it's like, well, these are the states that are in Schengen, and these are the ones that are in the Eurozone, and these are the ones that are, um, you know, in the European um, economic area, right? So this already exists. That's just going to get worse and more f- more fractal, right? And that's kind of where I see this going. So how do you think that idea plays with the sort of ambition of the EU in its design of putting all the... And this is, this is a very normative idea. I don't think this is... You know, Macron has advocated this. I mean, do you think this idea of a European Matryoshka undercuts the actual purpose what the EU is supposed to be? Do you think this is... You know, it's kind of like granting that this cleavage in its armor is the first cut to dividing the EU. Or do you think it's just the most reasonable way to govern? I mean, I don't think it's ideal. Um, I personally would much prefer a, a, a strong federal Europe that's that's um, that, that includes all of these states. I think it's the pragmatic approach. Um, I also think if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, right, like what is the European Union for? I think having that sort of, you know, I don't think they're going to call it the Matryoshka model, right? But uh, <laughs> they don't love the Russians. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's going to be the catchphrase. But 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 I, I think it's a good metaphor for mm-hmm. it, actually. That still preserves the overall goal of the European Union being the guarantor of peace on the continent, right? Like, even though it's not, you know, one solid entity, you still wouldn't have, you know, major war breakout among European member states. You know, I think it's enough to grant, mm-hmm. to, to guarantee that. Now, is it enough, for instance, to really have the EU play a an important role in global politics? Right? They're, they're I'm less sure, right? I mean, if you don't have every member state on board for certain issues, then you can't speak with as much weight on those right. issues, right? And so, and a lot of these things that are going to be coming up in terms of global politics where the EU could play a role, whether that's climate change, whether that's... Um, you know, regulating space, whether that's, you know, kind of like what we're seeing now with privacy rights, you know, regulating the internet, um, you know, upcoming things like how do you regulate AI, robotics, cybernetics, like all this kind of stuff that we haven't really even thought about. That's where the EU could play a big role in sort of creating this huge zone of, of common standards. Now, maybe on that front, maybe actually it doesn't matter whether you're a national populist or an anti-European, you might feel the same way about the rights of robots, right? And so you could, you could you could have like one zone on that, but it's not guaranteed, right? And the more more sort of, I think you're, you're right, more chinks in the armor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the less likely it is that 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 the EU is going to be united on those fronts, right? And so of the of the things you've mentioned, which, if any of them, would require a new EU treaty in order to kind of for them to deal with these issues, or is there kind of a perception that the current framework, if and correct me if I'm wrong, the Lisbon Treaty is the most uh, is the active treaty? Um, is anybody talking about a new EU treaty to kind of help them deal with, um, confront these issues? Or is it kind of... I haven't, I haven't heard any talk of that. And I think the reason is, you know, any treaty revision needs to be unanimous among the member states. So right now, if, if you open that Pandora's box, everybody's going to want to put different things in there, right? And there, you know, these big political questions of how the EU deals with migration, how it deals with you know, government debt, how it deals with... Um, democratic 
credentials and and the rule of law and how you how you can in some ways enforce these within the union these are also controversial right now i can't see them ever agreeing to some sort of revision of the treaties what i think is going to be tricky right is in order to do this kind of two speed europe or you know as you said that it might be an eight different eight speed mm-hmm. europe right like different sort of gears all over the place you either need to make use of and maybe even invent a little bit more flexibility within the eu institutions right so for instance i can imagine the european parliament sometimes voting in different configurations like hey if you're part of schengen only those countries that are in schengen only their members of the european parliament get to vote on this particular issue or something like that right like sort of using the eu institutions but sort of tweaking them a right. little bit right um that i can imagine happening the other option and i think this this would be more of a danger to the eu is if germany france and the benelux countries are like you know what we don't let's just set up completely different institutions for for instance our efforts to standardize um a minimum wage and unemployment benefits across our countries right and you know let's i don't you know they might say i don't want to you know we don't want to put this on to the sort of european union institutions because then everybody else is going to want to like have their say and honestly we don't want to deal with those like dirty eastern europeans who just constantly like um have their own stupid demands that we don't want to deal with anymore mm-hmm. right because i think there is a little bit of that kind of frustration uh in in western capitals and so if they do that which is essentially kind of what happened with the greek after the greek financial crisis where um there was this idea to set up uh, essentially a bailout fund and the member states deliberately did not set it up as an eu institution they set it up as an intergovernmental institution outside of the eu if you have more and more of that then the european union is kind of a, a an institutional system starts to erode and that i think could be dangerous for the eu in the future right and i mean i think we're dealing the question is basically should the eu kowtow to these make these smaller states happy or should it focus on actually what it does well and these sort of normative gains it's made so how do you reckon the fact that the eu is succeeding in its goal it is becoming more powerful it economically well minus the uk is the giant it was supposed to be how do you reckon these successes acting as sort of points of susceptibility? How it, you have countries like Italy, Poland, Hungary, no offense, um, taking it out on the EU for the fact they have been so successful and not accounting for these smaller states? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the successes of the EU, right, is the sort of invisible one, which is the fact that people aren't killing each other, right, around Strasbourg, right? Like they have been for hundreds of years and now they're not. Mm-hmm. That I think is becoming just invisible. Like most people don't remember World War II anymore. Um, most people have this idea that it was somehow natural that the West won the Cold War. It was natural that somehow after that Europe would be reunited. Like these things were marvels in their time, and nobody marvels about them anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's kind of one. That's the political success story, right? The economic success story is that you've actually created a, a, a massive internal market that really does function, right? And if you if you are in Europe and you're sort of traveling around, you know, it's about as integrated as the U.S. is. Like in most of the things that you're, you know, if you're in the Eurozone, it's the same currency, you know, um, the kind of differences that exist in terms of different VAT rates and stuff like that, that exists in the U.S. between states as well. So it really does function like, like one market. And actually, because it has many more 
regulations and protections, it actually works, you know, for the consumer, works better than the American market, right? So I think that that's kind of another success story. So the question is, you know, what's the, what are those arguments that, that member states can be using, especially those with populist governments, right? Um, to sort of chip away at this or to, to critique it, right? And I think the trick is that um, both of these these big advances that the EU has been responsible for in terms of peace and in terms of this internal market were essentially accomplished without very much democratic input, right? I mean, this was, from the very beginning, a kind of elitist project, right? Um, it, for the most part, flew under the radar of most people because most people really don't care about, you know, the exact workings of, you know, consumer protection laws, right? As long as they can return their, you know, um, T-shirt if it ripped after three days. Right? Like, they don't care if it's Brussels that made that rule or, or their national government. Like, that's just not something that, that really matters to them. Um, and I think what's happened is that, you know, in terms of EU integration, all of those things that most people don't care about or consider to be technocratic, those are done. Mm -hmm. So all the debates now about what the EU should be doing in terms of, you know, where are Europe's borders? How do you defend those borders? Um, how do you um, treat asylum seekers? Um, you know, what, what does it mean to have a, a, a fair wage? These kinds of things. These are much more political. Right. And so these debates that the EU is having nowadays are simply more important to citizens. Right. And there you can have this, this much more effective critique of the EU as not being democratic because all of a sudden the perceived need for it to be democratic is much bigger. Right. right. Now, as for whether the EU is democratic or not, I'm actually not sure that it's that much less democratic than some member states. Right. So if you look at sort of how much input a French citizen has into national laws in France versus how much input a French citizen has in terms of EU law, you know, um, France is a very presidential system with a very high degree of autonomy for its government. You know, it's basically the government that's, that um, proposes all bills. You know, I'm not sure it's that much different than, you know, having representation in the European Parliament and having your president represent you in the European Council. So, but, but I think there's a perception that it's less democratic. And that perception comes from the fact that for years, um, unpopular decisions that were effectively made by member state leaders were then you know, explained as, oh, well, Brussels made us do this, right. right? And so that's now kind of coming back to haunt these leaders. Um, so that's where I think this, this, this vulnerability exists. And the, I think the trick is it's a very unpopular opinion and I think it might not be even one that, that you can sell to the public to say, no, the EU is a supranational elitist project. That's its whole point. We have these people here in Brussels who know better and who are wiser than you and let us get on with it. Like, I, don't, I just don't think that today that kind of argument works, right? Whether you think it's right or not, or not right? I, just, I just don't think it works. And so if you, you need to sort of have... You know more democratic legitimacy, and then and then you open this up to all the populism that I think we see today. So, I guess in January, this article came out in Foreign Affairs called 
you wish you had Ukraine's democracy. And it was mm-hmm. a little bit tongue in cheek, but on the other hand, it was very well mm-hmm. argued. And the kind of the idea was that Ukraine is in a lot of ways doing better than some of these EU states that mm-hmm. are going through this democratic um, backsliding. And then the other thing that happened was in November of last year, uh, the Ukrainian parliament and then the president signed into law these changes to Ukraine's constitution that that basically require Ukraine to have a course towards uh, membership in the EU and NATO. And as far as we know, this is the first such case in history mm-hmm. where a country is put in the preamble and then in a statute of the constitution that we are going to join these international organizations. And so I, I'm curious, how do you see um, Ukraine's integration with these organizations playing out over the next you know, 10 years? And how likely do you think it is that they will get in? So I'm pretty sure that the Ukraine is not going to join either EU or NATO in the next 10 years. There's different reasons for that. I think in terms of NATO, um, Ukraine today is effectively a battleground. So because NATO comes with this Article 50, um, sorry, Article 5, too long long talking about Brexit, (laughs) Um, guarantee, right, that if any member state is attacked, that's going to be treated as as an attack on all others. Um, I think NATO is going to be very reluctant to allow any state to join where there's a high probability of fighting. And in Ukraine, there's not a high probability. It's already going on. So I don't see that changing. Um, I think that kind of low-level, um, whether you want to call it a civil war or a, an ethnic conflict or an incursion by the Russians, you know, that's sort of, um, that's a different debate, right? But like, mm-hmm. but either way, it's I think it's going to continue. So I don't see Ukraine joining NATO anytime soon. I think that the... But in, in terms of, yeah, do they ahead. have to join NATO to get into the EU? Because I know that's the historical precedent of all the countries that are members of both. They all join NATO first, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but I think the, the that context was different. So I think it was um, you know right after the the end of the Cold War. Obviously, these 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 states wanted to join what they considered the West, and the sort of the the placeholder for that was joining NATO and joining the EU. Joining NATO to a certain extent was easier because the criteria for that were mostly military. Right. right? Um, to join the EU, you had a bunch of different criteria. You had to basically create a free market from scratch, but then also have all these regulations transposed into your into your national um, uh, regulations. So, so that just took longer. Um, so, I think that was the reason there for that. You know, for for NATO always coming first. Um, I'm not sure that that would necessarily be the case today, uh, but but in, in terms of the EU being willing to accept Ukraine as a member, um, I just again because it needs to be unanimous. I can't imagine that that there's going to be such a consensus uh-huh. within Europe to to get a relatively large country that's quite poor compared to the rest of Europe um, that even though is democratic, is certainly not in the vanguard of rule of law right. um, and you know, anti-corruption efforts and all this kind of stuff, right? So, and I think weirdly, it's become less likely because of what you just mentioned, which is that there are certain current member states of the EU that have experienced massive backsliding in terms of democratic principles and rule of law. Because I think the idea behind the EU and, and especially behind EU expansion was always that you have the European Union expanding 
was considered to be almost like a civilizing process. So once you joined the EU, because you would be sitting around the table with the French and the Germans and the Belgians and all those um, uh, those Western countries, you would sort of the, the idea from the EU side was um, you would slowly start to take on those uh, those characteristics of having you know parliamentary democracy. Blah, blah. Granted, obviously there's all sorts of corruption in Belgium and France and Germany too, right? So this mm. is hypocritical to, to begin with. But at least the idea was, you know, we basically lock in these democratic gains by letting you into the EU, right? That idea, I think, has been smashed. Nobody believes in that anymore. So this idea that, you know, oh, we'll let in Ukraine and they will just get more and more democratic because that's what European states do. Nobody's going to buy that argument anymore. And that's why I think, you know, EU expansion is going to be very, very slow in the future. Um, I think the Balkans are still going to get in because that's kind of a half-finished project and you, there's no good way to stop. Like you, you now have Croatia and Slovenia in and the rest out, but that's not really sustainable. There's no real rhyme or reason to that. So at some point, I think they, the, the former Yugoslav countries will all join, but, um, but I'm very skeptical that, that Ukraine is going to make it. Okay. And so does a country like Turkey kind of offer an example of how this might play out in a longer term perspective where, you know, Ukraine is going to keep acting, saying we want to get in, we want to get in, and you, the you might keep dangling but never really start to, to move on it? Yeah. And, and, and I think the Turkey case is very instructive because what happened in Turkey is this went on for 20, 30 years. And then, you know, this year is going to be 30 since, since the... Um, 99, no, 20 years since since the since Turkey has been a, an official candidate for membership. But by now, nobody in Turkey really believes that this is ever going to happen. Mm. So Turkey is very much turning away from Europe and trying to find its own sort of geopolitical mm -hmm. space or, or position in the Middle East. Now, Ukraine only has one other way to turn. Right? So if it doesn't turn towards Europe, you know, if it turns north, there's just, you know, polar bears if they still exist in 10 years, right? If it, you know, it can only really look east, right? And so, I mean, I don't really know how that's going to play out if the population gets sort of weary of this whole, you know, constantly begging to be let in at Europe's door mm -hmm. um, and then turns much more friendly towards towards Russia. Or if you just really have a, a real, again, split of the country, right, between the east and west, um, which is already starting to happen, right? If more and more people sort of start to move in those directions and you get more, you know, kind of like you have the great sort here in the United States and you have a great sort within Ukraine where based, if effectively the country is split in half. Right? And, and how do you think people in Brussels and in Strasbourg might have reacted to Ukraine putting this in their constitution? Does it not make them feel at least a little bit of shame that this country <laughs> wants to get in so bad and they're putting it so kind of deliberately and forcefully in their, in their documentation that it doesn't kind of affect them in any way? I mean, that... To be honest, that I think was the real audience, right? Yeah. So putting this in the Ukrainian constitution, I think, was much more a um, a signal to the European Union that, hey, this is this is really what we want. We are committed to our European perspective, and you need to make sure that this perspective stays open. Okay. I'm, you know, I would think that some in Brussels might have this have this idea that you know. Now, now the ball is in our court, but I actually, I actually think that this has been something that has been on the minds of Brussels policymakers for at least 10 years, and I never understood the actual policy behind it. So to me, the policy of the EU was always, we are going to 
offer Ukraine this European perspective so that it makes those hard choices um, in order to be part of the West without ever thinking through the second half of that sentence, which is, which means that if Russia then punishes the Ukraine mm-hmm. for, that, for that choice, mm-hmm. then we need to be willing to to you know strike back to defend yeah, Ukraine yeah. and to and to respond right so it was kind of a we are going to go down this path but not commit to going to the end of the path and I was like well then that's the wrong path yeah. right I still haven't really seen much evidence that that European policymakers have really learned that lesson and so I think you know for, from from what I see right now it's basically more of the same it's sort of stringing Ukraine along saying okay now we have an association agreement. We're going to, you know, engage with you through this neighborhood policy, et cetera, et cetera. We're not going to come outright and say you will never be part of the EU, but we are also certainly not going to give you a date by when you're going to join the EU. And so I think it's just sort of this is this short termism, right? You're kind of kicking the can down the road, um, but I don't think it's a it's a terribly wise strategy. And I think it should be pointed out. We've talked about this in class that like the actual rules for enlargement are totally spurious. I mean, I think they've had debt rules. Yet Italy's been a 60 year member, and they have democracy rules. Yet Romania and Bulgaria are you know about to join. So I guess, but that's my question with Ukraine. Is that so for Turkey, they could kind of be like, well, you guys don't have the best human rights record and you're not really part of Europe. Like, they can kind of put that sort of footnote on it. Ukraine is part of Europe. And the only reason they don't want to accept them at some point, if Serbia is knocking on the door and Albania is knocking on the door, is that we don't want to piss off Russia. So how can the EU kind of paint themselves as we are this force that is going to bring peace to this continent? We also don't want to piss off our old neighbor. Like, how can they play both sides of that? I mean, I don't think they can without looking hypocritical. Right. But I think that's... That's That's not new to That's Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen, right? I mean, a similar situation exists with Moldova, right? Nobody ever talks about Moldova. Um, I have friends who go to Moldova and they say that's absolutely right. There is nothing to talk about in terms of Moldova. But, you know, it's not as big of a, a... a country and it's not on our radar but it's the same thing it's you know it's a it's a small eastern european country formerly sort of in, in the uh, in the communist bloc and you know i think it's eu prospects are just as poor right mm-hmm. and there there's not necessarily the same kind of I mean, there is kind of that russian the transnistria prob- transnistria problem right yeah. but it, but at least it's not it's not an active one right now okay. um but I think it's just it's it's a general weariness and wariness on part of the EU to repeat what I think you know at least the Western Europeans see as the mistake of the enlargement of two thousand four and two thousand seven, which is this idea of bringing in poor states with less of an established set of democratic credentials and hoping that they will that these credentials and this rule of law will be solidified through EU, um, through EU rules. Now, the one, the one change I can potentially see, but I'm not too optimistic about it, if the EU somehow finds ways to really censure its own member states who are backsliding in terms of democracy and human rights and rule of law. So 
if there really is a concerted effort to invoke um, Article 7 against Hungary, which is this article that would potentially, um, at the end of the whole long procedure, strip it of its vote in the European Council and the Council of Ministers, um, and really, you know, punish certain member states for, for not living up to these democratic ideals, then I think there's a bigger opening for, for, for enlargement. You can say, okay, well, we still have some control over these states even once they join, but I just don't see that happening. I think, you know, looking at the sort of political landscape right now, I don't see the EU you know, being able to do that kind of, that kind of punitive measure. being less optimistic i'd be remiss if we didn't bring up brexit mm. um so keeping score a little bit there's been four votes this week if i'm correct one declining Theresa may's final brexit offer another declining a no deal a third declining um a call for a new referendum and a fourth accepting um kicking the can down the road um so i guess my question would be i mean there's a thousand questions with brexit um, how long do you think they'll extend? Are they going to get anything from an extension, or what do they want? I think is, I think that's the that's the sort <laughs> of million pound question <laughs> is Literally. what what the hell the UK wants? I think what was become very clear in this right is that the UK wants things that are incompatible, right? So the UK wants to have its cake and eat it too. And then smush that cake in the EU's face. Like it wants those three things. And I'm like, those, you, you can't even have two of those things. Yeah, you can have yeah, one of those yeah, things. Yeah. Right. And so to me, um, what's, what's, what's very clear is that there, there are no good options to the UK. The, you know, members of, of, of the House of Commons are, are slowly starting to realize that they have no good options. Uh, so I, I really don't know what, what the UK wants. I mean, my sense is that, and, you know, we have we have two more votes coming up next week, right? Mm -hmm. um, one is yet again a vote on the withdrawal agreement, which I think you know Theresa May is going to come closer to the UK House of Commons accepting it, but I don't think she's going to get there. We're about 100, 130 votes away. I think she was one hundred forty nine away, something but, like that. But there's already a trajectory that's building. She's getting more and more votes yeah. each time, so yeah. she's happy about that. Exactly. So so that's going to be one vote. Um, I don't think enough is going to change between now and then for her to get it, but. Um, who knows? Um, and then there's going to be a, a vote in the European Council on whether or not to grant this this extension. Right. And my sense is that at least until a few months ago, I had this feeling that many in the EU were still thinking that the best outcome would be for this whole Brexit thing to be cancelled. And for the United Kingdom to realize that this whole idea of leaving the UK or leaving the EU was just a stupid one, and uh, they've sort of come to their senses. And to a certain extent, I think there's still some people who at least talk that way. So Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, is still kind of saying, "Oh well, we should give the UK more time." And the sort of unstated second sentence there is for them to just undo this whole thing. Right. I. I'm less and less sure that a majority of member states agree. My sense is that there's a very strong level of frustration with the United Kingdom and its politics at present. My sense is that when these member state leaders come together and think about 
do we want this kind of United Kingdom back in? Even after a referendum where, let's say there's a second referendum and the remainers eke it out by 52% to 48%, mm-hmm. right? Which would be a, a massive margin, right? Yeah. Like that, that still means half the country is in the EU without wanting to be. Right. That's not sustainable, right? And, and, and it's also not the kind of, you know, political partner you want sitting around the table. Yeah. So I think by now, more and more European member states just want this Brexit thing to be over and done with. And so my sense is that this, this idea of a, of a long extension of Article 50 so that the UK can either call new elections or have a new referendum or, you know, basically just continue its, its sort of chaotic politics for another year. Nobody really wants that. I mean, if you, right. if you look at sort of what the EU has done in the past 18 months, not on Brexit, but on anything else, it's been nothing. It's been paralyzed because it has mm-hmm. to constantly deal with this Brexit nonsense. None of it, which was its own, of its own making, none of it, which it wanted. And so I think they're just tired of it. I mean, if, if you think about it, you know, even this, this European Council meeting on the 21st, like they already had a full agenda to talk about competitiveness and innovation and like how to reform like all sorts of EU policies, you know, uh, that's what they want to deal with. And so I, I think there's, there's, there's more and more frustration with the, with the United Kingdom in that sense. And I think you know, there's, there's more of a good riddance type of attitude now. Um, so I would be surprised if there was a, a very long extension aimed at getting the UK to change its mind at this point. Do you think Brexit has opened the door for a quiddly or another country to exit? Or it has made it look like such an impossible headache that... The EU economically weaker might be politically stronger on the other side. I think in terms of the EU fracturing geographically, um, this is actually one of the best arguments for the EU in the past couple of years is seeing what the UK is going through right now. It shows that there is a way to be a sovereign nation state in the era of globalization. It's just a shitty way. And it's not going to, and it's and it's going to require massive sacrifices, yes. both economic, cultural, um, you know, in terms of you know, being a power on the global stage. I mean, many many fewer states are going to care about what the UK thinks now that they're no right. longer part of the EU. So I think I think what it will show is is the price of non-Europe, right? And this mm-hmm. has always been a you know, when I worked in in, in Brussels, there's a lot of sort of hand wringing about this of. Um, what we need to show is obviously like EU successes, but people think that that's natural, right? People think it's natural that they can travel across borders without showing their passport. And you're like, no, like that's, <laughs> that's a massively new thing since, you know, since World War I, we haven't really had that. And now we have it again. Um, but it's hard to sort of explain that or campaign on it, right? And so there was always this talk of like, how do we show the costs of non-Europe, right? And usually it was like, well, look how much worse it is for for states that are trying to join the EU. Like, would you rather be in Croatia than in um, than in Hungary? But then people were like, well, but yeah, but they're just less developed. So you're confusing, you know. Right. Um, so now there's an actual chance to show, look, nobody can say that the reason it's bad to be in Britain is because it's an underdeveloped, poor country, right? No, like you can show... All the things that are being wor- that are worse now because you're a Brit, they're directly due to the fact that you left the, the European Union. So you can show the costs of non-Europe very, very cl- uh, clearly. And so I think in that sense, Europe is going to be strengthened by. And this I think also explains why 
Europe is not willing to bend over backwards yeah. for the UK to get a, a some sort of really beneficial deal. It's that if they if they got some sort of great deal, then everybody would be lining up to get sweetheart deals from the uh, from the EU, and, right. and I can't afford to do that. Yeah, totally agree. Kind of a you know difficult question, and it's a very long term speculative yeah. um, time frame, but. Do you think we could see a scenario where you know the uh, UK does leave the EU, but then 20, 30 years down the line, they're knocking at the door and they want to come back in? Well, Article how, 49, come <laughs> back. Yeah. How likely do you see a scenario like that, that the EU kind of survive? And have, in fact, there's almost Brexit almost kind of tightens the EU back up to the point, continues to be a normative power and all these other things that we've talked about. And then the EU kind of just comes back um, and knocks on the door to get back in. I mean, I think there's going to be probably some pressure on the UK to do that at some point. First of all, I think it's going to be a smaller UK. I think by the time that the UK comes back to Europe, it will have lost Northern Ireland to Ireland. Uh, Scotland's 50-50, mm -hmm. um, which is also quite extraordinary, right? That yeah. we're talking about the, the falling apart of the United Kingdom, but I think it's, it's very much in the cards. Um, I don't think any European leader would consider the UK as a candidate country for at least a generation um, because, you know, none of these political controversies will have, will have been resolved by then. Um, so maybe like 30, 40 years down the line. But, you know, when I'm thinking about like projecting something 20 or 30 years out, right, like thinking of where we were 30 years ago, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that was Glasnost and Perestroika, right? right? Mm -hmm. right. So, and all of us <laughs> thought, oh, the Soviet Union is going to be around, yeah. right? So, um, I, I wouldn't want to project stuff out yes, that far right. out. But, um, but yeah, I mean, and it also depends at that point, you know, this is the, the, the trick is, right, to a certain extent, the UK is going to be left behind, right? Um, it's going to obviously, you know, try to make trade deals with other, with other countries and sort of play some sort of role in the world. But essentially, it's going to just, you know, be stuck kind of the same way that like Norway is or, you know, um, the EU is going to evolve in the next 30 years. And so the question is, if it becomes a much looser kind of confederation of nation states with, with a lot less supranational ambition, then it's going to be easier, first of all, to, to, to allow the UK to reenter. But second, it's also going to be more likely that the UK will want to reenter. Right. Mm -hmm. If it, you know, as, 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 as you potentially suggested, you know, it, there's a new energy in, in, in the EU because of Brexit and it, and it goes down this sort of, maybe there's a two-speed Europe and the core gets really, really integrated. Everybody sees, hey, that's, that's actually where it's nice to live. We should join this. You know, there's a, the, the two-speed Europe continues, but the, the, the fast-speed Europe keeps growing as more and more states are like, actually, we want a part of that. And you get a much more integrated Europe, then it's much trickier to, to let the UK in, right? Because then all of a sudden, it's basically like when the Eastern Europeans join, it's like, well, here's all the stuff we've done since you left mm -hmm. now you need to do all this you need to take there, there's no way they're going to do let them do that without joining the common currency without joining schengen and the free movement of people right all these things that are that the uk currently had uh, opt-outs for yeah the, the reason i ask is that you know if i'm not mistaken i think 78 percent of people in the 25 or younger demographic voted to remain and so, you know, given that political context, it's hard for me to imagine even kind of in a shorter term perspective, this not just kind of coming up again, kind of like already this very big generational divide. And so 
Yeah. Um, it, it might be a generational divide that's not a 30, 40 year one, but smaller. And so mm-hmm. a lot hinges on how the EU is going to react. And I agree at what point they're ready to kind of even consider this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right that the generational divide is, is shorter. So in terms of the UK's population wanting back in, that might happen earlier, right? So the, the big losers of Brexit, right, are basically British 20-year-olds. So if you, you know, if you see a 20-year-old Brit south by, give him a hug. You know. um, <laughs> give but, Jonathan Parker a hug. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that's, that, that, you know, that, that's part of, um, part of this weird tragedy of this, right, where really the, the, the people who are being most affected by Brexit are essentially the young people who voted against it. And especially those young people who didn't bother to go vote against it. So, but 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 yeah, that's that's where it's that's where the real price is going to be paid. Yeah. Right. You know, I, at least for me, as somebody with kind of strong feelings about it, I I always wanted. You know, I, I watch a lot of the UK parliamentary debate, and I wanted somebody to bring it up in such stark terms, kind of like. You know, when we're all, you know, <laughs> you know, 20 years later and the people who voted are 20 years older, that, you know, the demographics was just that there would just be such massive support. So what tapes, you know, what steps is the government taking to give us a speedy re-entry into the European Union? I think it would be rhetorically nice if somebody would put yeah. it that way. As actually Mike Mosser who told me today when I saw him about there's this group, I forget the name of it, I wish I could recall it now. It's like our our union, our future, or something like that, um, our, something like that. Um, but it's basically a bunch of young people in, in the UK who are pro-Remain. And apparently they have a website running where they're counting down how many old people have died since right. the referendum, being like, well, you know, in terms of, and, and, and how many young people have become of voting age, being like, oh, actually, you know, <laughs> this is when we're going to, mm-hmm. even if the same proportions of people showed up, right? Like, um, no, I think you know, the, the yeah. right. I mean, it's morbid, right? And, and of course it's, you know, plays into this like war among generations, right? right. But, um, but I think, you know, this, this, I think it's important to remember, right? If you look around the house of commons, what the average age is, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's certainly not representative of <laughs> where the United Kingdom is, right? So that, that's, that's part of it. Yeah, it's crazy. We're talking about the British Empire getting even smaller, potentially, in 2019. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's really interesting to me. Is also sort of thinking about how this is going to be written up in the history books, you know, right. 100, 200 years down the line, right? Of being like, you had essentially the British Empire, right? And then you had this sort of slow... Not crumbling, necessarily, but like, mm-hmm. but sort of withdrawal, right? Tight. Of... of, of withdrawal of Britain from the global stage, right? In, in successive little moves, right? And sort of, you know, you know, American independence and then, you know, uh, World War One, and then, you know, having the um, sort of uh, anti-colonial movements and decolonization. And I think we're sort of like, if you look at it from in that perspective, this is kind of the sort of tail end, right? Um, and it would be really weird if it, you know, ended up just, losing Scotland and Northern Ireland as well, right? So you're right. basically left with sort of this two-thirds of a little island, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, this, this is, this is the, the, the tricky part, right? Is I think especially those of us who study Europe, there's this idea that there was kind of a historical Europe, right? Where borders changed and wars happened. And then there's like, mo- like not modern, um, 
my wife is a historian would slap me. Contemporary. <laughs> uh, contemporary Europe, exactly. Which has... Which has... I don't know, kind of... Gone over that kind of history, right? Mm-hmm. And has, has, has broken through that kind of history in this kind of like post-historical thing where borders don't really change, but also even if they did, they don't matter because we have the European Union. And I think this shows that that's not true, right? Like you can have, just as people thought communism was going to last forever, and now we think, oh, that was sort of this weird blip. Mm-hmm. Communism was this 50-year blip in European history. Well, maybe the European Union, like this whole idea of reuniting Europe, Europe, that was another blip. Right. Um, I doubt that anything that would come after would be as good of a blip. Um, which, you know, so, so that's why I'm worried. Yeah, it reminds me of that old joke of Brits think 100 miles is a long distance and Americans think 100 years is a long time. But uh, I think the last, I hundred year, I mean, the last 100 years have been pretty quick for England, I think. Yeah. Um, so I think we're kind of reaching the tail end. What we usually like to end with is uh, our guest telling us their last favorite book they've read and last favorite movie they've watched related goodness. to, unrelated to your oh, goodness. field study. Um, I'll, I'll give him time to think and yeah. say that I mm-hmm. have a recommendation of my own just related to the Brexit topic. There was this HBO um, Brexit kind of movie with uh, uh, Cumberbatch is, mm-hmm. is the actor. He's kind of a famous actor. And it's all from the point of view of the kind of intellectual architect of the the, the Leave campaign, mm. and I, I highly recommend it. And it, it what's it, it called? It's it's called, it's called Brexit. 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 It's called yeah. Brexit. Have you seen it? No, it's in my Netflix queue. Okay, okay. Well, or I, HBO I, no. queue. I forget which one. No, I, yeah. I I very highly kind of recommend it, Definitely. and I think it touches on so many of the things we've actually talked about uh, today, including the inter- intergenerational divide over there, and and also kind of just you know I think one of the arguments of the film is just that really the it, it, right the reason that leave one is it got into these very psychological kind of complexes that a lot of the british people mm-hmm. had and the with with empire and kind of decolonialization yeah. and, and the effects of that and then people feeling economically left behind sure. and um yeah so that was that's my little plug yeah yeah i i gotta say mostly what i read is um science fiction and fantasy stuff. And so what I just found interesting, I'm, I'm you know, read a bunch of different things lately, but what struck me as really interesting, and this kind of relates to what we're talking about with the EU, is almost all the new books coming out right now are dystopian. Right? It's about different kinds of dystopia, right? And when I was sort of, you know, really starting to get interested in this stuff, you know, basically in the 90s, most of the stuff coming out was like utopian, right? Um, so I find it really interesting that, you know, there was this moment in the 90s, right, right after the Cold War was over, where the, the general sense, even just in the zeitgeist, right, was like, oh, we are sort of um, moving towards this, or past the kind of big ideological tensions, right? We've reached the end of history, according to Fukuyama, right? And, and now we're going into this future that's kind of post-national, right? And to me, like, the, the, the perfect kind of example of that was Star Trek The Next Generation, right? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Right? Like, that's, that to me is, like, the, the quintessential, because it's, it's not about the future, it's about the 90s, right? Like, sure. there's something incredibly 90s about it that sort of, now it looks almost, like, naively hopeful, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then now it's all Hunger Games, right? Um, and so... I just find that really interesting. Um, 
and so you know in terms of the kinds of stuff i'm reading it's you know um uh, i really like hugh howie i don't know if you've read his stuff yeah, but um has this series starts with a book called wool um also sort of dystopian you know science fiction stuff doesn't really relate to the eu but but it's but the sort of you know, but I think it's from the early or mid 2000s, something like that. Cool. Um, I've been reading a lot of his like other stuff, his short stories and stuff like that too. And that I think is, is interesting to sort of see that, um, uh, that kind of, uh, shift sort of, um, of, of, of what happens. And I'm, you know, what I'm, what I'm really interested to, to see is how far we can go back to nationalism being the, the supposed solution, right? So what you hear now is sort of, you know, there, there's basically intellectual arguments and, 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 and political scientists and everybody and uh, public intellectuals arguing that, you know, basically we need to, we need to resurrect nationalism in some, in some form because that's, that's, that's where we have community and that's where we can have democracy and that's where we can have, um, have an appeal to, you know, some sort of common truth and these kinds of things. When you say intellectuals, do you mean like Steve Bannon or? No, I mean, so, so partially, but there's, um, but, uh, there's a, I'm, I'm horrible with names, but there's this, um, Israeli intellectual who also made a a sort of, um, argument like that. You, I just read this piece earlier, um, today by, it's in the Washington post today by, uh, Robert Kagan. Um, talking basically about the, the rise of authoritarianism and how the real divide in, the, in, in, in our current world is between liberal and anti-liberal governments. Right? And he, he cites a lot of these, not necessarily in terms of agreeing with them, but cites a lot of mm-hmm. these, uh, the, these arguments for how you know, the, we, we need to sort of reclaim the nation as, 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 as something to, um, to base our politics around. And just, I think as somebody who's studied a little bit of European history, like, that just gives me the heebie jeebies. Yeah, I don't know if I want Kagan leading any discourse. <laughs> but anyway, fitting. We started with EU and ended with uh, dystopia. Yeah. But uh, thank you for coming on the show. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Dr. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.